is Chris Rufo. We are now beginning the space uh, titled How the Right Can Defeat Woke Capital. Uh, the goal of this space is to continue uh, conversations that we've been having uh, over the past few months about uh, political strategy for American conservatives, about tactics that can be useful for the American right. And I think one of the most uh, interesting and dynamic parts of the political landscape right now um, is this uh, really significant shift uh, in, in the politics of America's Fortune 500 companies. Uh, historically, if you look back uh, from the 1980s to the present, uh, uh, companies were seen uh, as, as, as really part and parcel of the American right from the Reagan revolution through the Bush years. Uh, American conservative politicians promised favorable economic conditions for companies reducing taxes, eliminating regulations. And in exchange, corporations were largely supportive of, supportive of, of, of the right uh, politically. I mean, this isn't a surprise to anyone. Uh, back, back, you know, back to Marx even, you know, capital was always seen as a kind of a, a, a part and parcel with the American right. This has shifted. American companies have been, um, uh, uh, have secured what they needed from the political right and then have been uh, seeking to appease or to mollify or even to um, uh, appeal to the cultural left uh, on, on issues of race, gender, sexuality, um, and, and a whole range of other cultural concerns. And so uh, the, the, the idea behind this space is to introduce some guests who are really uh, at the forefront of this fight. Um, we have uh, Libs of TikTok, who of course needs no introduction. Um, she's been uh, highlighting especially uh, uh, issues of uh, gender uh, in schools and companies and advertising, been very effective in mobilizing public opinion. Um, we have Peachy Keenan, a writer for The American Mind and others, um, who has actually uh, worked inside of one of the, the wokest corporations in America. She's going to actually reveal that for the first time here today and is a, is a, a, a great writer, great a political thinker and has some particular insights. Uh, we also have Matt Nee from WPAI Strategies. He's a, uh, a pollster. Uh, he's a political strategist. He's worked on winning campaigns for uh, many uh, Republican, national and, and statewide Republican uh, candidates. And he's done some uh, specific opinion polling and research on the questions of woke capital, uh, conservative boycott efforts. He'll have the data uh, to, to really uh, bring to, to, to mathematical uh, specificity uh, answers to some of these questions. And then in the second hour, we're going to be having Matt Walsh uh, come on the space, talking about what the Daily Wire has done, um, providing what I think is an essential counterbalance, um, at least in media, now expanding into children's entertainment and uh, some other products to, to, to get their insights about how uh, uh, you can put competitive and business pressure on some of these uh, woke uh, c companies. And so what we'll do, uh, the format will be, I'll, I'll go around, we'll have some opening statements from panelists, just setting the, the frame for the discussion. Then in the second hour, we'll take questions. Uh, we'll welcome Matt Walsh uh, into the space uh, and we'll go from there. So I just want to start uh, with you, Libs of TikTok, Kaya. Um, you know, talk to us in particular about Bud Light. I think there was a moment where it seemed like you were feuding with uh, Dylan Mulvaney uh, uh, very regularly in a very high profile way, um, uh, bringing this story to, to national media attention. 
And um, I remember at the beginning uh, thinking, huh, I wonder if this is a wise tactic to elevate this person, to draw attention to this person. Um, uh, and and I, I really wasn't sure. But then something incredible happened. It, it, it really sparked this Bud Light boycott um, that was, I, I think, the most successful conservative-led boycott in history. Uh, the reporting suggests that Bud Light took a $400 million loss in annual revenues. They haven't recovered. Um, and so um, I, I, I think this is a, a really good example of a spontaneous, conservative-led, social media-led uh, rebellion against this company that's done lasting damage. So take us to the beginning. Take us back to how this emerged as a conflict, how you thought about it, and then um, how it played out that it went from you know, kind of social media spectacle to uh, a real culture war victory. Hi, Chris. Um, this is exciting to be here. So yeah, the Bud Light story. So first of all, let me issue a correction because I went on Megyn Kelly a couple months ago and she asked me if I thought that this Bud Light boycott would be successful. And I said, no, <laughs> and I was so wrong and I'm glad I was wrong. <laughs> um, <laughs> Because it turned out to be very successful, and um, I think I think it is very interesting of you know the story of why and how Bud Light became probably the first like really successful boycott from the right. And I'm excited for the space today so we can dissect uh, the Bud Light story and other stories and see how we can um, use what we learned from that to. Um, you know, in other scenarios and to, to really start holding people accountable and to take back our culture. Um, but I think from the very beginning, um, Dylan Mulvaney started like popping up all over TikTok. Um, and it was just, I think it was just so outrageous. Um, I always look for the most outrageous things. And Dylan Mulvaney, I mean, I could literally post every single one of his videos because every single one is is, is so outrageous the way that he makes a mockery of women and he like walks around with like tampons and he calls his whatever's down there like a Barbie pouch. I mean, it, it's just like, it's so, it's so disgusting. It's creepy. He was like dressing up as a little girl dancing around. So it's like hard not to, to point out how insane this is and how he's making a mockery of women. Um, and he's also really young. So, you know, the, the if we're talking about like the, the trans agenda, it really is targeting like the youth. And I think Dylan Mulvaney, he just like somehow became like the, the, the poster boy for, for the trans agenda. Um, so then obviously when he hooked up with Bud Light for that advertisement, um, it just like spurred the whole thing on. And um, yeah, I think that we, we have to really talk about what we're going to do today about like how and why that happened specifically with Bud Light. And can you give us just your initial thoughts of, uh, to answer that question, how and why did this Bud Light uh, uh, effort work where other, other campaigns and other companies boycotts had failed? So I think number one, because like I said, cause it was Bill Mulvaney and he is perhaps the most outrageous transgender activist, um, very well known. Um, very provocative. So I think that's part of the reason. But also, I think it was it's a it was a good product to target because I mean, I'm not a beer drinker at all. But from what I understand, their beer is like really subpar. <laughs> and there, there are so many other beers. So it was like very easy replaceable. So 
so it wasn't like, you know, you have to change your whole lifestyle. Um, you know, there are some brands I could think of that I would love to boycott, but it just, it's really, it would be really, really difficult. So Bud Light was just really easy to just be replaced and, and to boycott, I think. Yeah, I think that's right. And, you know, I, I in preparation for this space, I, I published an essay this morning at City Journal and on my Substack, looking into the academic research on boycotts. And two things really stood out. One is goods that are easily substituted. Bud Light is perfect for that. Uh, you go to the grocery store and there's a hundred different beers. Uh, it's very easy to pick something besides Bud Light. But I think also what you're saying, uh, the social scientists call it the egregious act. Boycotts almost always begin from the corporation or the firm committing an egregious act that mobilizes public sentiment. And the, the technical term they use is negative arousal, uh, which I think is really funny social psychology, meaning kind of emotional, uh, kind of a negative emotional charge. But in Dylan Mulvaney's case, there's another, maybe a double entendre, uh, clearly a negative arousal uh, for every everyone, uh, quite, quite a disgusting uh, display. And so um, I, I think that is 100% right. It was the right company. It was the right egregious act. And then tell me a little bit more before we move on. How did you, though, I think you did a brilliant job commanding public opinion, setting the target, uh, raising the stakes, uh, making it a salient public symbol? You know, why did this story in particular really just blow up uh, largely because of your efforts? So again, I think it, it goes back to to just how egregious it is and just in general how we're all just so sick of what these perverts have been doing for so many years, like completely unchecked. And 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 then Dylan Mulvaney comes along and he's like the poster child for this. And I think it had to do with all of us just being really fed up with this, um, like with what they've been doing with this whole trans agenda and the sexualizing of kids. And, and this just like was a really perfect opportunity because of all those things that we just mentioned to, to really just focus on the story and, and blast it like that. Um, and, and I'll just say that I think it could be easy for us to just take this win and move on. But I think what really inspired the win was that frustration that we have all been feeling for months or even years that finally came to a boiling point um, and then this perfect opportunity presented itself and we, we all just like jumped on it. Great. Great. Thank you. Okay. Next we'll, uh, we'll bring up Peachy Keenan, uh, who I mentioned before, uh, you know, she, she is a, a, a writer uh, uh, for American mind and other publications. She has a great book out called uh, domestic extremist, uh, which, uh, which I suggest that everyone reads, but um one thing, you know, I've been, I've been working behind the scenes with Peachy for a number of years. And one thing that is uh, kind of amazing, and, and I asked her if I could share it today, and she said, go ahead, is she actually used to work for Walt Disney Company uh, in a creative capacity. And so I wanted to talk to Peachy specifically about uh, Disney, you know, what she saw inside the company. You know, tell, tell us what you, um, wh what you felt uh, happened over the time where you were at Disney, and then your impressions about, again, a very successful, not only consumer boycott, but political fight, um, you know, which we, we frankly, we won, you know, I, I did some reporting, Governor DeSantis uh, did some, did some uh, uh, political fighting. And now we have Bob Iger, the, the returning CEO, saying that he wants to try to stay out of these culture fights, because 
they're too damaging to the brand. So Peachy, why don't you tell us a little about first your, your personal uh, experience uh, with Disney and then uh, the political ramifications you've seen in the last year. Okay, great. Hey, Chris, thanks for doing hey, this. Hey, Siri. Um, yeah, I was in the belly of the beast, um, <laughs> the unhappiest place on earth for someone like me to work, basically. Um, so yeah, just some background. I was an in-house creative and a senior writer at Disney, um, and then an Imagineer um, working for the, the rides for a total of six years with a maternity break um, in the middle. And actually, this is why I became Peachy Keenan. I started writing as Peachy because I was literally at Disney, like in the office um, when I started tweeting and writing. And like, you know, if I had expressed my actual opinions, um, that would have been it for me. I would have been beheaded. Um, so at Disney, when I started back in 2014, I got hired as a writer. And the first thing you do for the writing department is they give you a writing test. And so they want to see, you know, how well you can embody the Disney voice, you know, friendly, clever, immersive. It's all about the guest experience. And the person who hired me told me that, you know, the key part of our job as cre creatives was to always protect the Disney brand. And he literally said, because they have a lot to protect. And it's just incredible how times have changed, like how, you know, the Disney brand, they were so protective of for so many years, for 100 years, you know, well, whatever, 95 years, they, they didn't really make it to 100 years, um, was so, it was so careful. There were so many rules about how you could talk about the characters and the rides and the movies. And now they just sort of out the window. I mean, um, back in, let's see, one example of this is, I think it was like in 2018, um, I sort of had a feeling that, oh, wow, things might be changing around the Disney parks. We were in a creative meeting. They were going to roll out new marketing for the Bibbidi Bobbidi Boo Boutique. If you've been to the parks, you know, this is the princess makeover hair salon and little girls go. It's it's totally charming. It's one of the my, my favorite parts of the park. It's completely immersive. And these little girls get this sort of magical, you know, fairy godmother makeover. And I've taken my daughters there. And so the directive of the meeting <laughs> was to strip out all gendered language from all the marketing, from the website, from the whole, from the actual salon itself. Uh, we were no longer to use she, her pronouns. We were no longer really allowed to use the word princess. And again, this is a princess <laughs> makeover salon where you turn into Elsa from Frozen, but they wanted to make it completely gender neutral. And I remember thinking like, is this, how is this going to fly? Like, who is this for? Um, and, you know, and actually I was the person who had to rewrite um, a lot of the copy around the Pirates of the Caribbean ride. Um, I mean, I was literally in the belly of the beast. And when they had to, when they removed the wench auction, I don't know if you guys remember, if you go to the parks, that was always the best part of that ride. Um, my favorite part was the wench auction. And there's like women chained up crying. You know, it's a joke. Um, it's classic and they ha they replaced the whole thing with this sort of girl boss pirate, pirate red, and she's in charge now and she's holding a gun and all this stuff. And it was just like, what are they doing? The, you know, I thought they had a brand to protect. And the other disconnect really was just as a parent at the time I had four kids. Um, I was the only parent on my team, basically, like no one in my office had children. And if they did have a kid, it was like one and done. I mean, they just really don't understand um, the, the customer base. There's just such a huge disconnect. And and then we're seeing that play out now with the movies. I mean, people are done. You know, the parks are doing great because they're marketing to 
you know, the child-free millennials, the the dinks, the the Disney adults. That's the name. Disney has a name for these people. The, you know, the people who have like buy little Mickey hats for their fur babies. These are the Disney adults. <laughs> Children are like no longer relevant to their bottom line. But their movies, their movies suck. And my kids don't go to them. We don't even really, I really have no awareness even of new Disney movies, especially not what they're doing to the princess movies. But again, so, part of the plan. as far as the management and leadership, though, I mean, this has shown clearly to be a bad business decision. They're, the last number of big budget Disney feature films have flopped. They've lost something like $100 million collectively in the past few films. They paid a huge price politically, um, did major damage to their reputation among conservatives. We saw as a matter of public polling. Their approval rating went from, you know, in the 70s to in the 30s, people who had strong uh, positive opinions about Disney. You know, why does the leadership continue to pursue this? What is happening with, within the culture of the company where they feel uh, unable to right the ship and return to uh, a kind of normal cultural position? Yeah, I mean, I think it's really about who is there now, especially the studios. You know, they've done, they've done so much hiring um, of the type of person that, you know, the marketing, what was her name? The marketing exec at Bud Light. I mean, that's the exact kind of woman who's now in charge of, you know, greenlighting the studio films and and, and planning out, you know, all the, all the casting decisions. But really, maybe the, the main villain in this is Sean Bailey, um, who actually I used to work for long ago. He was a partner in um, entertainment startups with Ben Affleck and Matt Damon back in the day. Um, and he is now, Sean is in charge of Disney live action. So he, I've shared this on Twitter. He, there was a New York times, um, big glossy article about him a few months ago about, he's the guy who is reimagining the live action remakes of all the princess movies. So he's the guy who engineered, you know, the, the live action little mermaid. He's the guy behind the snow white debacle that we're seeing. They basically pulled the plug on the new snow white based on, you know, I'll take a little credit. Okay. <laughs> um, those crazy dwarves. They had like Antifa dwarves. You guys all saw the photos. <laughs> yeah. So, Some yeah. non-binary Antifa dwarves for Snow White. Yes. Yeah. Perfect. You know, like, yeah. What is this? Uh, you have a Snow White character who, who hates the movie, hates Snow White, hates Walt Disney. Like, what are they doing? So he, and I think his first princess reimagining was Beauty and the Beast, where I think they made Gaston like a gay character. And, you know, the girl from Harry Potter, what's her name? Emma Watson was like this empowered girl boss. Just the same formula now is being used for all the all the princess movies. So, I mean, I really blame him. And he's looking for credibility among, you know, he it's just like a big F you to the little girls and families who want to just go see just go see Cinderella. Um, he I mean, actually, the first Cinderella was that was actually was his first movie. And that was the one, it was sort of pre-woke. It was like the the, the only one that was pre-woke where the Cinderella character is this beautiful, lovely, very demure, sweet character. I don't know if you guys probably remember this. And there's no, there's no, um, you know, race swapping. You know, it's just very true to the original cartoon. And that was basically, basically the last gasp. And ever since then, it's just been this like slide into total just woke, you know, disaster. And so I think he's doing these for his friends in Hollywood. You know, this is just the virtue signaling they just have to put out to stay afloat among their peers, among the other parents at their private schools. And, you know, one thing that I learned in the reporting on Disney, uh, you know, I released the internal videos where they talked about their 
you know, not so secret queer agenda. They talked about putting non-binary characters in the backgrounds of their movies. They talked about turning Disney into an activist enterprise. You know, some of the executives, some of the board members uh, have children who claim to be transgender. Um, It's seen as a status symbol or uh, it's seen as something that is very progressive in the social circles uh, in which they travel. And I think for conservatives, you know, from my perspective, one of the big lessons is when a culture gets captured to the extent that Disney, for example, has gotten captured, um, it's very hard for them to extricate themselves from that. It would be very painful for the CEO of Disney to disband the, uh, you know, kind of uh, non-binary trans and queer activist organizations within the company. It would be very painful for them to strip out the gender neutral language and put back in, you know, hello, boys and girls. It would cause a a, a lot of uh, difficulty, consternation, especially for someone like a Sean Bailey or a Bob Iger, you know, uh, white males, the kind of the the, the last white males who are doing everything they can to protect themselves while, uh, while, while they throw their identity categories under the bus. And this presents a big opportunity for conservatives because we can keep hitting them and hitting them and hitting them and they cannot change. It's like a, a very big army that is marching in, in a rigid formation that you can, you can start attacking uh, and flanking and they can't move. They can't change direction. They can't adapt to it. And so I, I don't see from my vantage point much evidence that they're going to be able to change the culture in the short to medium term. And I see a lot of evidence that the conservative boycott, the conservative media campaign, and then the political campaign that was initially led by Governor DeSantis that has now spread elsewhere. Um, You know, even Congress trying to, uh, congressional Republicans were saying, we need to get rid of the copyright uh, protections for Mickey Mouse and let them expire. I mean, uh, (laughs) it it, it was this great uh, 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 moment where Republicans shook out of their, you know, Austrian economics, uh, you know, uh, orthodoxy for a brief moment to say, hey, wait a minute, Uh, the economy should serve uh, 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 the people. And to the extent that these companies are are having an unfair unfair playing field or attacking uh, 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 constituents of political leaders through their political activities, and then, of course, from a more grassroots, spontaneous perspective, to the extent that conservatives say, hey, wait a minute, I don't want to take my kid to, you know, non-binary Mickey Mouse cartoon time. Uh, not interested in that. I, I think we have a huge opportunity and they have very little uh, counterattack. So what do you expect to see in, let's say, the next year or two years uh, from Disney, your former employer? Um, well, just one real quick thing. It was really funny. Um, I think in 2020, Disney announced to save money. Um, because California is such a hard, obviously so expensive to have a huge company. They were moving everyone, my entire department, the whole campus where we worked, plus Imagineering was was being forced to move to Orlando, like outside Orlando to a new <laughs> development they were building. And so they were going to liquidate, you know, all these jobs. And basically you could, you, if you didn't move, you were fired, right? And so the funniest thing for me was people were literally hysterically crying at the idea of having to move to Florida under Governor DeSantis, you know, to them, he's like this crazy boogeyman. And I remember someone said, like, people have guns in Florida, like they just couldn't even deal with the idea. And actually, a lot of people quit, because they just, you know, moving to Florida was just absolutely no go. And then, and then chaos, and then DeSantis and the whole don't say gay thing happened. And that was like such chaos. 
I mean, they were like rats scrambling around what, what to do. And people, and finally they canceled the directive that you had to move to Florida. And I knew people who were literally like halfway driving across the country, had sold their houses in California. And they got a call when they were like in New Mexico, like, actually, never mind. <laughs> you don't have to do it anymore because they got so much pushback. I mean, they're just like completely controlled by their employees. So what's going to happen now? I mean, I think that'll depend on the stock price. I mean, I think that what South Park just did was really great and you know just totally you know skewering kathleen kennedy what they've done with star wars how everything they touch now in terms of a movie or a tv show is just so bad it's so you know doctored up by their um their their writing teams who are just you know the worst possible dei collection of quote-unquote creatives and so i think they're going to continue to slide the parks however are still doing well yeah. Because those child-free millennials just can't get enough, you know, can't get enough, you know, $12 churros, you know, whatever. So, um, but families are canceling Disney Plus. The streaming is bleeding them dry. Um, so I think we just have to continue doing what we're doing. I think, I think there is, I think when Snow White got pulled last week, I think that was a huge wake-up call. That's and I think moment. we're going to start, I think we're going to quietly start seeing just, a walk back and like, maybe we'll pause on the race swapping. Maybe we're going to, you know, I think, and I think Kathleen Kennedy probably will be pushed out. I wouldn't be surprised if Sean Bailey is also pushed out, but we'll see. I mean, you know, it's Disney, man. Like people really, it's sad. It breaks my heart. You know, I grew up at that park. So I hope they, I hope they do pull out of the nosedive. But like, like you said, Chris, those employees are locked in. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that the, the, the literature on corporate boycotts is, again, a helpful kind of point of comparison. And the, the, the literature is pretty clear. It says that effective corporate boycotts attack co companies or firms on two different vectors. One is reputation and the other is uh, finances. And so, you know, the, the polling data suggests that Disney's reputation has taken a just did was really great. And, you know, just totally, you know, skewering. Kathleen Kennedy, what they've done with Star Wars, how everything they touch now in terms of a movie or a TV show is just so bad. It's so, you know, doctored up by their, um, their, their writing teams who are just, you know, the worst possible DEI collection of quote unquote creatives. And so I think they're going to continue to slide. The parks, however, are still doing well. Yeah. Because those child-free millennials just can't get enough, you know, can't get enough, you know, $12 churros, you know, whatever. So, um, but families are canceling Disney Plus. The streaming is bleeding them dry. Um, so I think we just have to continue doing what we're doing. I think, I think there is, I think when Snow White got pulled last week, I think that was a huge wake-up call. That's and I think moment. we're going to start, I think we're going to quietly start seeing just a walk back and like, maybe we'll pause on the race swapping. Maybe we're going to, you know, I think, and I think Kathleen Kennedy probably will be pushed out. I wouldn't be surprised if Sean Bailey is also pushed out, but we'll see. I mean, you know, it's Disney, man. Like people really, it's sad. It breaks my heart. You know, I grew up at that park. So I hope they, I hope they do pull out of the nosedive. But like, like you said, Chris, those employees are locked in. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that the, the, the literature on corporate boycotts is again, a helpful kind of point of comparison. And the, the, the literature is pretty clear. It says that effective corporate boycotts attack co companies or firms on two different vectors. One is reputation and the other is uh, finances. And so, you know, the, the polling data suggests that Disney's reputation has taken a major hit 
the CEO of the company has admitted as much in, in, in different public appearances. And then financially, one of the bits of analysis that I did from their investor reports around the time of the kind of furious month-long attack uh, against Disney from uh, from us, you know, on social media, from uh, Governor DeSantis in Florida, the domestic subscriber growth for Disney Plus, which is of course the great hope for the company long term, it tumbled by something like ninety five percent. They had kind of foreign subscriber growth that was continuing, so it masked over uh, in a net manner the the, the subscriber uh, kind of deceleration. Um, but quarter over quarter, it, it it basically collapsed around this time and. It still hasn't been able to turn a profit. The growth is slowing. It's still growing, but it's growing in a in a slow manner. And uh, you know they're they're losing money. And I think that they're starting to understand that culture is a reason why. That when they put up the kind of Antifa, uh, you know, non-binary dwarves on Snow White, that it's becoming a self-parody. Um, it's becoming. Uh, the, something that is uh, is unbelievable. I mean, it takes you out of uh, the, the sense that it's uh, organic to the story or a kind of clever and attractive riff on the story. It's something that is just ideology um, that that actually contradicts um, you know the the, the wishes of, of the audience. And so, uh, my sense too is that this is this is a, a big moment, and conservatives can debate you know rightfully on either side. You know, should there be policy on on any of these issues? I'm more amenable to it. Others are not. But from even just the public perspective, my sense is that um, you know, and 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 even the Wall Street Journal reported after the attack against Disney, Fortune 100 CEOs were quietly talking to one another, quietly talking to their risk management firms and PR firms, and they were saying, "Hey, we got to avoid becoming the next Disney. Let's pull back." and the other point of optimism before we get to our next panelist, I think the other point of optimism that we all have to keep in mind is that uh, companies uh, uh, still are much faster moving than government, than public entities, public institutions. Um, a, a company that feels fear, that feels greed, uh, that feels opportunity um, can, can shift policy very quickly relative to government institutions. And so and, and and I think that most of these positions with Disney, it's a entertainment firm. The culture's different, but you know, for a bank or for an energy company, most of these left wing cultural positions are lightly held. They're they're held almost because they're they're you know the, as like a hostage uh, situation. Uh, they feel like they have to do so to protect their reputation. But once the dynamic shifts, they can shed these uh, positions. And you know, the early evidence as we were. It's appeared that we were going into recession. Netflix uh, eliminated, you know, a huge portion of their DEI jobs. They eliminated some of their boutique identity programming. Um, so even California-based, very left-wing, very creative firms that have a company culture that is to the left of even, uh, you know, corporate America writ large, they're able to do it. Uh, and I think that you know one of my goals is just to create the controversy and to politicize DEI initiatives to the extent that they're seen as a risk for companies on both sides. Uh, and so providing the permission structure for corporate CEOs to abandon DEI, to lay off DEI employees, to, to draw a, a more moderate line on cultural issues, 
um, and then in the back of their minds have fear um, that much as the lips of TikTok and, and, and Daily Wire and, and others uh, had, have done with Bud Light, we have the power to punish you reputational, reputationally, and we have the power to punish you financially. Um, that's the language that I think companies understand. And so let's go now to Matt Nee. Uh, Matt, for those of you who, who are not familiar, is a uh, pollster, a researcher, consultant at a firm called WPAI. Uh, they've led a number of very successful political campaigns, at the state level, at the federal level. And um, Matt, I'm hoping you can take us take us through the numbers. Uh, tell us uh, what the data says and what your opinion research says about how the right can do corporate boycotts effectively, how the right can push back against uh, uh, the, the big companies in the United States. Yeah, absolutely. And first of all, thanks for having me on. Uh, you know, this, this is cool. Um, so to start out, a lot of what you're saying is true about the correct targets, but there is another angle, and that's that these companies are concerned with specific demographics a lot of the time. So what we're going to want in terms of targeting, in terms of in terms of taking opportunity, is a brand like Bud Light where the people that they care about, the people they expect to be buying their stuff is already some folks where we do better at. And we're actually in a deceptively poor situation in some cases because of what the conventional wisdom is in the corporate marketing world. And the corporate marketing world says – you want to get them early before they're dedicated to some other brand. Um, and, and after all, not only are they not dedicated to someone else yet, but also you can, what, once you've put in that investment, you get to keep going for and collect on it for a long time. And two, uh, there's a lot of data out there with the numbers vary and so does the reliability, but there's numbers suggesting even 70, 80, 85% of Actual purchasing decisions are made by women. Uh, so when you so when they're looking, when the average brand is looking at demographics they care about, you, they'll see. Oh well, yes, public opinion may say this overall, but young women, the young and women and young women, those you know, those folks especially matter for their targeting much more so than say boomer men. So not only do we have to go look at ones where you know, we think people like us are going to like it, we have to understand that we're fighting against the fact that they believe that they actually get better ROI out of some of our worst demographics. And we should probably do something to fix those demographics, but that's a different problem. Uh, so, 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 so that's an important bit there. That's something that made Bud Light easy. The people making the purchasing decisions on Bud Light or that Bud Light perceives making the purchase decisions or a lot more likely to be the kind of people who would support this. And also, but oh, plus a lot of things you said, but also Bud Light is commonly consumed in public. And so you can create a social story around that. You can, you saw examples of people making fun of people for consuming Bud Light in public and, uh, you know, making memes about it and things like that. It's a socially policeable kind of thing. So on top of your replaceability and vulnerability and things like that, that's an important thing. So to, to get into some of the polling numbers, since we've been doing, you know, honestly, there's not that many folks out there who are like, yeah, we want to pay you to go do a poll about this. But we do marketing polls off our marketing budget just because like, OK, there's going to be interesting stuff we could put out there. Uh, we think it's important. We want to contribute to the conversation. And so we've done a bit on that because it's just something that we're interested in and care about and think we could say 
useful things about. Um, and looking at, you know, we looked at the Bud Light thing from a number of angles uh, in particular, uh, and we found that what really happened is we were able to get, we were able to get our group to hate Bud Light. You know, Republicans' favorability wound up like minus 43, or Dems were only about plus 15, and that's, but the also important part about that was we didn't pull, we got our people interested, their people were not interested in defending Bud Light. They, you know, they had twice as many people with no opinion of Bud Light than us. And in fact, if you, we also pulled Coors kind of as a control group. And we found that just as many, that just as many people had no opinion of Coors as Libs currently had no opinion of Bud Light or almost as many. So that was where we were actually really successful. Uh, Another another useful bit that we found on it is pulling the actual pulling the actual issue. Now, of the issues that of the culture war issues, some of this, some of the trans issues are actually some of our best issues. You get sixty to seventy percent of Americans think there's only two genders. When we specifically asked uh, if about both about Bud Light and actually we did it also about uh, another brand about Nike, uh, were if people are less likely to buy something because of, you know, be, because they used this, you know, be, because of these uh, transgender influencers, it was 60, 40, less likely, you know, less likely to more likely. Uh, and about, but importantly, you know, it's the kind of issue where a lot of the centrist positions are a bit lightly held. So if you then go to who's actually angry about this, because they're the kind of people who can mo- mobilize, it was more about a third, a third, a third, uh, angry, not angry, no opinion. Uh, but the thing is, boycotts are still to some extent an elite activity, or rel- or at least a not not elite activity. This is the thing that activists do. And in fact, looking at Bud Light, you know, who, who, who likes Bud Light the most now? Not libs, it's people who don't vote. Uh, because this is just not the sort of thing that they are concerned about. Uh, so um, one of the sorry, one of the things that I think is also very interesting about this data is, you know, you and I had spoken previously and, and worked a bit uh, together on critical race theory, and I noticed a similar dynamic uh, at play where it mobilizes our people with high levels of uh, uh, kind of what the social science calls negative arousal, anger. Uh, uh, high, high levels of passion, high levels of of, of, of activist energy, um, and, but it also either demoralizes or or provides a kind of neutral affectual response among our opponents. And so, if we can motivate our people and and demoralize or hold neutral um, uh, opponents, I mean, those are the key issues. I mean, that's like the best possible dynamics that you can have in political life. And so it it seems like this is also a very interesting scramble where, um, you know, left, left wing activists are not going to come to the defense of huge companies. Uh, it's not in their DNA. Uh, it's, it's, it's typically not in their wheelhouse and they'll get attacked by their, their friends for being, you know, corporate shills or whatever. Uh, and so we provide them with these, we, we can create these targets where, we can hit them hard. We can mobilize, you know, 30, 40, 50% of people to have strong opinions against these companies. 
and there's nobody to defend them on the other side, while at the same time they're being held hostage by internal forces like those that Pichi Keenan had had had, uh, had pointed out. And so, um, any other dynamics that that have practical political uh, lessons or uh, kind of tactical implications from your from your polling and research? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, there's a few other things. You know, you you say that, and you know that's also where it's they're they're going to be let less likely to go and come to defense of exactly the kind of brands that are more, more, more vulnerable to our attacks. Because if we're, if we hit brands that are already blue collar coded or male coded or conservative coded, these aren't brands that they like a lot. And we don't have to deal with the, you know, Disney adults who will pay $1,400 a night for a star Wars hotel. Uh, although I suppose that thing ultimately failed, but people did, uh, they, they, they don't, have that kind of desire to defend those sorts of brands. I also do, we also did look somewhat at the conservative parallel economy. Uh, mm-hmm. We built, cause we figure look at all these folks trying to sell things to conservatives. Hey, we could build targeting models that they could use to try to help with that. And interesting findings that we had were there is a market for it. I'm not sure if it's the kind of market that's going to actually disrupt the left. We found that among potential Republican primary voters about about 20% each for much more likely to buy such a product versus another 20 for somewhat more likely to buy the pro- to buy a product. So there is a market there, although I think that a lot of the marketing channels that are being used for it are, you know, they're going to buy a, a donor list from a conservative organization or magazine. They're going to put it on Fox News, stuff like that, you know, sell it to boomers like it's uh, – gold or reverse mortgages and it turns out that actually demographically it's the millennials and the xers who are more interested than the older voters in ideolo- in ideological pro- products probably because they're a more culture war kind of demographic and i, I thought that was kind of interesting yeah and you know my, my take on this is that it's not it's not realistic and nor is it even desirable for uh, kind of, kind of right, right-leaning ideological company to overtake, uh, you know, the larger brands in whatever category they're in. You know, conservative coffee company doesn't need to take over Starbucks. All it needs to do is provide a kind of place not only for consumers to go, but also for employees to go um, to create a conservative counterculture that is self-sustaining, that is financially profitable, that can also kick in on some of the political causes of the day. So having those firms available, and I think the Daily Wire is the paradigmatic example. The Daily Wire, um, I mean, I would love for it to be, it's possible, but let's say it's unlikely that the Daily Wire will be bigger than Walt Disney Company uh, in the next 10 years. But what the Daily Wire can do is actually have, I, I think, pound for pound, much more cultural and social and political impact than Walt Disney, and they can do it uh, in a for-profit basis rather than the work that that I do, which is on a a kind of philanthropic basis or a nonprofit basis. And so it strikes me as the alternative economy is useful um, uh, at at, at a relatively small scale, providing substitution effect opportunities, providing different means of, of, of transmission for values, providing employment opportunities for like minded people. And, uh, and and it then also strikes me that these big companies are are 
relatively more vulnerable to attack. Um, any other insights before we, we ta start taking questions from the audience? Uh, any other insights from some of the polls? Um, I think that's I think that's about what I came here with. I can start talking about ESG and stuff like that, but I feel that, that I think that's kind of yeah out of okay out, yeah out let's go yeah let's let's come back to that. And so for anyone listening, you know, start uh, uh, requesting to speak. Uh, we're going to take some questions. Um, I'm trying to get uh, uh, Armin on my team to get libs of TikTok back in the room. I think she's dropped off. Um, but uh, we, we'd love to get some questions and uh, see what the requests are. Um, and uh, why don't we go to Bradley Productions? Brad, Bradflix, we'll, uh, we'll start with you. Go ahead. Nope. All right. Let's, uh, let's. Were you asking for me? I'm sorry. I just. Yeah. Oh, oh, here, Brad, we're going to go to, uh, yeah, go ahead. Go with your question. No, I, I didn't have one ready actually. So come back. All right. We're going to go to new tolerance campaign. So new tolerance campaign, um, for those, uh, who are not familiar is one of the new upstarts that is trying to capitalize on some of the boycott campaigns, developing tools to, contact CEOs. I worked with the New Tolerance Campaign on a number of uh, corporate stories that I've done. Very effective. I think we, remind me if we worked together on American Express. I did a big story on American Express. They were doing some awful things, you know, and, uh, and, and it got so bad for the company that at one point, the CEO of American Express was hand responding to angry customers via email, uh, uh, trying to, you know, beg them to stay with the company and making excuses for some of the critical race here they were pushing. So, uh, New Tolerance, why don't you uh, uh, make your comment or ask your question? Sure thing. Thank you very much, Chris. This is Gregory T. Angelo, the president of New Tolerance Campaign, for those who might be wondering. Uh, and Chris, I just want to thank you for the very kind mention of NTC in your City Journal column this morning that uh, is the inspiration for the spaces. I did want to point out uh, something that I, I think might be important to this discussion, or maybe it's just the, a topic better left to another spaces. But the phenomenon of reverse boycotts that I think conservatives have found some success with in the past as well. Uh, I think folks will remember back in 2012, uh, I believe it was, when uh, Chick-fil-A was getting harangued by all these LGBT activists. Uh, Mike Huckabee you know, led what became a very organic grassroots movement uh, to actually have people patronize Chick-fil-A more. You had uh, you know, lines of cars, sometimes three miles long, if I recall, uh, people wanting to, uh, uh, to, to give their money to Chick-fil-A, basically. And one of the most um, uh, uh, popular campaigns that we had at New Tolerance Campaign last year was not a campaign attacking a corporation or a CEO, but giving people the opportunity to thank and praise a corporation when they did the right thing. In this case, it was Penguin Books, which was under tremendous pressure to uh, cancel Supreme Court Justice Amy Coney Barrett's book deal. They held firm, issued a public statement saying they would not. And I think when people do stuff like that, uh, they should be... Um, they should be thanked. It means a lot to these CEOs to hear words of gratitude, sometimes just as much, if not more, than when they hear those those negative comments. Now, my question for the uh, for the group, though, and uh, I don't know, maybe Matt, you might be best place to speak to this, but uh, I think that there is an enthusiasm gap when it comes to boycotts uh, between 
the left and the right. In fact, I, I know that there's one because polling has indicated that uh, people who are younger, people who are liberal are much more likely to uh, not only threaten, but follow through on boycotts. And people on the conservative end of the spectrum and people who are older uh, do not have that same type of enthusiasm. What we saw this year was not, the, was not the case. I mean, you had people from conservative demographics that have stepped up to push back against Bud Light, Target, and others. I wonder, is this an anomalous moment? Is the reason for this disparity between uh, enthusiasm, this enthusiasm gap between the left and the right, because our side for so long has thought this is futile, uh, or is, is there something else at play? Thanks for taking my question. Sure, Matt, you wanna take a stab and then I'll go? Sure. Uh, so I, I do think you're right that this is a new thing, and I think that some of it is ideological. I think that boycotts are built into the DNA of people whose ideology is all about looking for situations where the power dynamic isn't what they want to be and trying to establish and use power to go and try to fix that. I, it's boycotting and critical theory are just naturally go together in ways that the previously more libertarian, uh, more institutionalist conservatism was a little bit leery of. And I think that I think we've become more comfortable exercising power. And I think there's a bit of a generation gap, too. Obviously, our young people aren't nearly as aggressive as their young people. But nevertheless, uh, we certainly see a bit of a difference between our boomers and our young people in terms of who's willing to do this. So I do think that there's some, that it is potentially sustainable, especially with everybody seeing Bud Light as an example of a win. Yeah, that's the other insight from the academic literature. It, it perceived efficacy or kind of expected efficacy, meaning the, the, what people believe the likelihood of success is with one of these campaigns actually is highly correlated with the, with the, with being successful. Uh, and so it, it, it's kind of like the, uh, the old power of positive thinking actually really does work in boycotts. And I found it amazing that libs of TikTok earlier said, you know, yeah, I, I didn't think that the, she said that she didn't think the campaign against Bud Light would be successful. Uh, I felt the same way. I thought that it was maybe a, a tactical misstep to be focusing so much attention on Dylan Mulvaney and lo and behold, it's successful. And so there's a possibility that this dynamic could be self-reinforcing, that um, uh, the, percep the, the kind of achievement of success influences the expectation of success, influences the perception of success uh, in a mutually reinforcing way that will make companies uh, more and more cautious to transgress uh, you know, the kind of unruly, conservative, social media uh, ecosystem um, that has uh, a fairly significant market power. And, you know, when I was fighting some of these corporate fights, I talked with friends of mine and venture capital and in kind of high, high positions of, of money management and investment. And, uh, and they pointed out to me something very simple. They said, hey, Chris, if you're the CEO of a consumer goods company and your sales decline 3%, um, everyone around you is in a panic. It's significant, e even marginal shifts in consumer behavior are perceived as extremely significant. Um, you know, all sorts of red lights go off. And so you don't have to shift things uh, substantially in order to, to, to change cultural incentives. Um, let's take, uh, 
let's take maybe uh, another question. Let's go or Bradley, uh, Bradley, why don't you, uh, you come on, come on board. If you have your, your, your question figured out, you can okay. unmute and then ask. Yeah. All right. I appreciate it. Um, quick question about, do you think X overall now has more of a bias towards conservative, uh, news, news, uh, talking points rather than, I know obviously Elon Musk in the recent interview with Joe Rogan was saying that there was like a 10, a 10 X bias towards liberal media um, prior to him uh, purchasing the company. I was just wondering if, do you think the tables have turned or have they just gotten more level? Like, I don't know. Great I, I question. Wondered, I'd be curious to know how someone like the Krasensteins would, would answer that. Like, cause they, I mean, obviously they're more left-leaning than, than I am and, and most conservatives are. And, uh, so I'm just curious, though, like if they feel like they're being they're treated being treated fairly, or if they're being treated like uh, like the yeah, good question. I don't know. Yeah, good question. Yeah, Peachy, why don't you uh, weigh in on that? Why don't you give us your sense of how the kind of the, the political playing field on this platform uh, has changed since uh, Elon Musk took over? Oh, okay. Yeah, I mean, for me, it's been huge. I mean, I was sort of stalled out in terms of my follower counts, in terms of getting, um, getting throttled constantly. Um, it was just weird. It got to a point where I was at like around 10, 12,000 followers. And I was like, not budging, not budging. And there'd be these periodic purges where I'd lose a hundred, you know, 200 followers. Some people lost thousands of followers. So as soon as he took it over, it was just an immediate change immediately. And then my book came out and I was able to gain all these new followers and just so much more engagement. And so, yes, it absolutely mattered. And other friends of mine have said the same thing. Other Anons on Twitter have said the same thing. Yeah. My, my, my sense, you know, just very quickly is that it went from a playing field that was tilted overwhelmingly to the left to a playing field that is more or less even. Um, but, but with maybe one twist being that Elon of course is now, aligning his own politics with the right, which I think has demoralized uh, kind of left-leaning users. So uh, my, my, my hunch, uh, without any fine-tuned knowledge, is that algorithmically we now have a more even uh, playing field. As far as enforcement, you know, kind of left-wing, you know, uh, uh, pieties like misgendering are now no longer part of the, the censorship regime. Um, but I think that the culture has shifted in large part because Elon Musk's politics are, 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 are a part of uh, the platform. Let's go to Athenian. Uh, our, our old friend Athenian, uh, uh, student of philosophy, uh, uh, let, let's hear from you. Hey, guys. Great space. Really appreciate the mic. Um, my question is tangentially related to this, but it, it, it is so in a way that most people have never really considered this. And so I think it, it really needs some attention. I had spoken at one point to a very, very thoughtful dean of an important great book school, and I've heard similar things since then. And what was pointed out was that at the end of the day, even the private colleges and these important colleges for the great books are still offering a product. And so they have to, in many ways, adjust themselves to the demands of the market. And I know that your speaker, I think it was Matt, had pointed out that, that noted the, the youth 
and how the youth are much more aggressive on the other side as opposed to our side, although I fear that that might be changing. And this was also something that came up in a very small chat that I have of some amazing professors. And I myself was very surprised to hear them say when they were talking about the enormity of the wave that is washing over every university regarding the DEI stuff. They just sort of shrugged their shoulders and said, well, it's really not too bad of a thing when you consider that it's preparing the students for the workplace. And so I was wondering if you guys had anything to, to offer outside of, for instance, myself being rather blackpilled that the institutions are just over, <laughs> except for the new startup ones that, for instance, that you're working on and perhaps the one in, in Austin. But what might you guys have to say or do you know of any kind of research on this topic about the fact that even the best of the small liberal liberal arts colleges that offer the invaluable education of a, of a great books program, they themselves are still a, a for-profit business and have to take these kinds of things into consideration. Yeah, that, 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 that's a great question. I mean, if Matt or Peachy has any comment, uh, let me know. But uh, I, I mean, look, universities operate in a an economic market as well as an intellectual market and a cultural market, let's say. And so I think that, um, frankly, that the United States should have, uh, you know, fewer uh, kind of less university capacity. I think we've overextended the supply of universities uh, uh, to, to, a, to kind of a harmful effect. I think the very fact that, that these uh, student loans are, are not being repaid is a symbol of that. I mean, at least economically. Uh, the university degree at the lower end is not uh, providing a return on investment. And in a pure kind of competitive marketplace, those loans would default. Uh, they would, be, you know, students would declare bankruptcy. And then the kind of lower tier of the university system would get wiped out financially. Um, but, but we're not in a free market. The, the, the government, especially the federal government, underwrites or guarantees virtually the entire student loan, uh, pro, uh, student loan market. Um, the federal government spends billions of dollars subsidizing universities directly. Um, and so I, I think that the opportunity is for these small classical uh, liberal arts universities to do something uh, that is dramatically different than their peers um, in, in that, that are going to be in financial hardship in the coming years. And my sense is that there's an opportunity there where the, the demand for, let's say, a more conservative, a more classical, a more even uh, kind of faith-based uh, uh, university education is actually very large relative to the supply of competent providers. And the real gap, in my view, is leadership. Uh, we need to have uh, leaders of these institutions uh, that, that really can take a, a page out of Larry Arne's playbook at Hillsdale, is actually standing on principle rejecting uh, policies and programs that might be tempting but offer no educational value, and then striking out to do something that attracts people uh, from all over the country. And um, the other good news is that we only need a few. Again, much in the same way that the Daily Wire does not need to overtake Disney, Hillsdale does not need to overtake Harvard uh, to have a pound-for-pound pound, uh, you know, greater impact. Um, so good, good, good question. Peachy, did you have anything to add? Yeah, I'm just going to say one thing. Um, you were talking about earlier, like the enthusiasm on the left, and it doesn't doesn't come naturally to conservatives. We're not a sort of natural 
activists. However, there is one group on the right that is extremely um, activated right now, and that is parents. And right now is college, <laughs> just to talk about colleges, it's college application season. And I'm actually going through it right now for the first time. We just sent out a few of our very first um, college applications. And so I've been talking about colleges nonstop with um, <clears throat> parents, mostly parents like me who are, you know, on the right or Catholic, conservative. But there's just like now a real understanding with that, that, there, that wasn't there a few years ago, that these kids are just absolutely at a huge disadvantage if they're applying to like a regular UC, UCLA, or applying to one of the Ivies, if they're, you know, straight, white, conservative, Christian kids, like it doesn't matter what their grades are. There's just an awareness that they don't even have a shot. But there's also finally an awareness that those are not the schools where we even would set want our kids to set foot. We do not want them <laughs> coming home with a new gender. You know, if you like your kid's gender, you can't keep your kid's gender if you send them to, you know, Harvard or Yale. Um, so there's just a huge awakening um, among parents who, you know, they're they're Catholic, they're conservative, they're not really thinking, they're not super political, they're not as online as me, for example, but there's now a huge awareness of what they need to avoid. And the college list of the moms I know is incredibly short, like so short, like none of the big schools are on it. Like people just are, are totally ignoring them and bypassing them for schools like Hillsdale and for small um, Catholic and Christian schools. Yeah. And I think another important point, and next we're going to go to diligent denizen, diligent denizen, you'll be up next. So get ready. Uh, but I think the other point is that liberal arts comes from the Latin liber, meaning free, uh, but not free like uh, Michel Foucault style free, but actually free like the, uh, the kind of noble citizens, the elites, uh, the, the, a free man, you know, befitting a free society. And so um, when we're talking about uh, classical liberal arts education, um, we're, we're, we're talking about uh, uh, education of a, a society's elites. And so it doesn't have to be large in scale. It just has to be large in, in relative impact. Uh, or, or, and, and, then, and then the willingness to, to govern, the, the willingness to, uh, to lead. And so um, some conservatives despair at the kind of institutional size disparity. But, uh, you know, I would take a Hillsdale College over virtually, you know, every second tier state school combined. Um, you know, I, I, I think that that's a, a trade-off, uh, you know, wor worth making. And I mean, I guess it's a trade-off that's being imposed on us, but, but I, I think that it is okay. So, um, let's go to, uh, uh I actually diligent Denison. A... Oh, and then uh, Matt Nee, and then we'll go to diligent Denison. Yeah. Yeah. Just on what Peachy said, uh, you know, we've seen huge demand for, uh, for parent mobilization in the K-12 space. Uh, but have yet to see that start mobilizing in the uh, in the college space. But my in my my sense is that you know as with Peachy's situation, when the same parents who are advocating in the K twelve space are about to send their kids to college, those same people who've already been mobilized and are already involved are going to start getting involved in that. But we've seen that. We, there's so many parent organizations that are so active. Also, politicians are really taking note. They see that. They they want to you – know, we've got various voter segments to sell. They want to do parent surveys. They want to target people on these K-12 issues like trans stuff in schools, like 
parental control, things like that. So we really are, you know, on the political side, absolutely seeing that groundswell. Uh, and, and I bet that just as same mechanism as with PGA, I think that we are going to start seeing a lot more activism at, on even higher levels about what exactly to do about the about the higher ed problems. Great. All right. Diligent Denison, you've been waiting patiently. Uh, let it rip. Hi. Uh, thank you, Christian. And thank you to the panel. Uh, I'm a father of a kid that came out as trans after the pandemic, you know, and uh, at 12. And she was indoctrinated through social, the social and emotional learning programs that they're implementing in our public schools. Now, I, I've I've fought that battle and, and we've both come out on the other side. OK, right. She no longer identifies as trans. But my point is, is, when I started researching on how they were able to implement these programs at, at the institutional level, a lot of it's done through NGOs, right? These nonprofit organizations uh, organize and form a network that run pressure campaigns on the um, on the schools, uh, the teachers unions, uh, on the school boards, you know, and a lot of these corporations, they'll run pressure campaigns for them to accept these uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion uh, uh, incentives. So mm -hmm. my question is, is how do we as conservatives form our own coalition of nonprofit organizations to push back against that kind of pressure? Great. Good question. Good question. Um, so, uh, you, you, I mean, it, it's a little bit beyond the scope or, you know, talking about uh, woke capital, but very briefly, I mean, I think it's already happening. Moms for Liberty, uh, there are Parents Defending Education, a number of other groups that are uh, forming these kind of uh, uh, kind of counter pressure uh, organizations, running for school boards. Um, I, I think it's happening uh, across the board, um, and so um, I don't I don't know, Peachy. I, I don't know if if you've come across this, but in your kind of parent group, any other any other answers there for uh, our commenter? Um, not really. My, my advice is, you know, when it comes to that stuff, like what happened to your daughter, you know, the first sign of trouble, I tell people this all the time, you got to get out of those schools. You know, the first, the, the instant you glimpse a, a drag queen walking into the kindergarten, you got to take your kid and run. That's my only advice. Yeah, I, I think that's, that's, that's about right. It's a uh, uh, <laughs> pretty clear signal time to change. Okay. Um, who else can we take? Uh, we'll just, uh, all right, we're going to go for, uh, let's say, Mupp Walsh. <laughs> we don't have Matt Walsh. We have Mupp Walsh. Um, go ahead. Go ahead. Is this me? Uh, I'm sorry. Yeah, oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. Hey, how you doing? Uh, this is... Uh... Uh, just want to say I represent the, the Gen X there, um, and I always believe in voting for your with your dollars. And I got a lot of people. I've noticed a lot of friends that are in the same boat, especially within the churches. But you know, we talk. I know you guys talked about the big things like the Bud Lights and the Disney's, and I think the awareness is getting pretty good there. But I've also also brought up uh, companies like Ben and Jerry's, and I usually get like people are shocked that those companies are. Uh, kind of uh, against what we believe here. Uh, one of the things that uh, I have a little bit of a two-part question. Uh, first part is, you know, what's the best way to bring 
public awareness, especially amongst friends and communities and whatnot. And then I guess the other thing too is, is there any sort of uh, uh, sites or anything that kind of lists like these woke companies so we could know where to spend our dollars correctly and maybe offer uh, good alternatives to, because I think that's the big thing too. Like, you know, say like, hey, you know, you don't like Target. It's tough to like, just, you know, Walmart's not that much better, but you know, are there other alternatives? You know what I mean? Good question. Good question. All right. Um, uh, Matt, Matt, any insight on that? Uh, yeah. Well, first of all, in terms of just places to look, I think, I think public square is trying to be that. Uh, also, uh, put a plug out there for uh, Patriot Mobile because they're a client of ours. Uh, if you want a, uh, a, uh, a non-woke cell phone company. But, um, you know, I think that, I think that part of it is just a bit on these companies to organize around, uh, you know, a, a, around getting people out to their thing. But also in terms of the wokeness, I think that Twitter's actually been a good place for the word to spread on a lot of these things. And if anything, a bit of a test where you know, an influencer will put out, oh, hey, there's this problem or there's that problem and kind of entrepreneur the thing and the ones that and there'll be a bit of a Darwinian process of, hey, this has caught on. There's people who really there's enough people who are really excited about why this is a problem. And now we can turn this into a movement. And then, of course, you know, look, as, as these things happen, people like me pull the things. Sometimes it looks like they're good. We talk about that. Sometimes it doesn't. Uh, you know, one one cool thing that I actually hadn't mentioned was we uh, we we actually pulled the actual content of genderqueer. People talk about, oh, you can't ban these books. This that. next thing, uh, you know, we we actually put out in the poll actual somewhat blurred images with descriptions of what they were actually showing children, and we get over 90% of people being like, oh, no, that's horrible. That's not appropriate. You can't do that. So a lot of it is just testing, whether it be poll testing something that's an actual source of conflict or just the Darwinian process of what catches on on social media when a competent policy entrepreneur tries to put it out there. All right, that's great. Okay, we're going to go to um, RS now. I'll... Uh... I'll, uh, uh, RS is coming on online. So, um, um, go ahead. You can unmute. Thanks, Chris. And, uh, good afternoon to all. Um, I haven't been present, uh, in the entirety of the space, but I did want to quest ask a question that was related, uh, to the title, uh, and, uh, just to set it up real briefly, I wanted to talk about uh, the uh, the big money houses, uh, BlackRock, Vanguard, Fidelity. You know, we're 30 plus years past the creation of the 401k. And I think in retrospect, one of the difficulties that that presents from a financial perspective is that individuals don't generally uh, vote their preference uh, and indicate their preference to C-level executives on the direction of companies, but rather proxy them over to uh, the three entities that I just named, which really gives them an unbelievable amount of uh, power in terms of setting the direction of corporate boards via the DEI regime. I'm just curious if you have seen uh, that same uh, that same thing. Uh, 
and whether there is any awareness, uh, either at the congressional level or other areas within the conservative movement, that that needs uh, to be addressed in some way, perhaps to fracture and to send the power of voting via stock back to individual investors uh, so that it's not quite so concentrated. Thanks. Yeah, great question. Yeah, so I, I would say a couple things. One is from some new reporting that I'm working on. Uh, I, I know uh, for a fact with some, uh, some inside uh, insights and, and knowledge that uh, at least one of those large asset managing firms is attempting to uh, kind of silently roll back or diminish their ESG uh, commitments and their activist um, uh, kind of initiatives on, 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 on the shareholder side. Um, the, the, the perception in this firm is that they have had so much heat, so much negative press, so much public uh, pressure uh, that they're uh, relenting, uh, that, that they have to pull back. And so they're trying to do so in a very quiet way. But uh, from from what I'm hearing, it's uh, it's significant. Uh, and then on the political side, uh, yeah, I think absolutely. You have uh, people like Andy Puzder. You have people uh, in on Capitol Hill that are uh, actively trying to figure out the mechanism uh, for, for these. They they understand that the asset managing firms are in this uh, kind of strange position where they're managing other people's money, but they're also voting on uh, you know ESG uh, style initiatives. Um, that there is a, a, a real disconnect. There's a, a kind of fundamental misalignment that can be hijacked um, by activists. And so the, the, I, I think it's still early on the policy side. I, I haven't read any of the policy plans that I felt like are the silver bullet or the ultimate solution, but um, there's movement on both sides. And I think it's movement largely in the right direction. And even if you look at the proxy vote history on activist uh, uh, proposals, um, e even a firm like BlackRock has has really pulled back from their more uh, kind of activist edge. I think largely because of the public exposure. Okay, uh, should we take another one, Armin? Who should we take? All right, we're going to take Michelle Parker. Michelle, uh, just uh, unmute your microphone and uh, and please uh, share your comment. Hi, um, my name is Michelle Parker. And I'm a headhunter. And I think um, as a headhunter, one thing that I've noticed uh, in terms of the candidates that I've, I represent, and I've been recruiting for 17 years and used to work for a big public company um, within the recruiting space and chose to leave that company because of a lot of the woke you know, DEI stuff that was going on. And I think another way that we can really um, vote is vote with our talent and choose to go to companies um, that aren't governed by this woke capitalism, like going more towards the middle market and then also you know, utilize our voice with leadership within the company and really encourage organizations um, to move away from you know, DEI related programs. And I mean, where we have the, the best luck with that, of course, is away from publicly traded companies and more um, middle market private companies um, with more, you know, middle market uh, private equity that's not as woke, per se. Um, I'd love your input on that. Yeah, that's a great question. And I'm going to toss that one to Peachy. And before I do, 
I want to also throw another question that we have from Susie, who's written a question on the thread. And, and Susie's also talking about this kind of similar to what Michelle's talking about, but in the creative fields, ad agencies, marketing agencies, brand shops. And so, um, I mean, Peachy, what do you, what do you think? I mean, is there a virtue of moving some activity towards companies of a smaller size, as Michelle says, is there any way to get even some of the creative firms to have alternatives there? Um, what's your sense of how the market looks? Yeah, well, that's tricky. I mean, because at the end of the day, people, you know, just want a job. And as we all know, it can be tricky now just to even get a job if you don't fit um, at a big company, if you don't fit whatever their, you know, quota is. Um, if you're if you're a white male, you may not, you may be shut out. And are there enough companies that can hire you to do whatever it is that you do? Um, you know, medical schools now, doctors and nurses, those are, have been so overtaken by DEI. Um, it, it, it's really tricky. I hope, and I think there is a huge movement to build alternatives, to build companies. Um, I worked at a company called New Founding that was trying to do that and build sort of alternative and grow new ventures that were going to hire non-woke people. I mean, I think that a lot of people who I know who own small businesses are really wary of hiring people who are woke, who have rainbows in their bios, who have their pronouns in their bios. So they specifically will like look, look for people who don't have those things because if you have someone like that in your firm, you've now hired an activist who can potentially become a poison pill who will destroy you in the end, who will, you know, sue you for sexual harassment and you didn't use the right pronoun and you didn't support, you didn't support their transition or whatever it is, name the, name the thing. Um, but meanwhile, we have people like uh, my sister, who is a lawyer who now works for a big kind of like a law, law review company, a huge global company. And she's conservative and she's forced to undergo up to upwards of 50 struggle sessions a year on various topics. Every week, she'll send me a screenshot from one of her um, sessions like trans transgender awareness day, women's history day, you know, queer indigenous disabled people's day. Like every week she has a, you know, it takes away from her work. She has kid children and she's forced to do all of these struggle sessions, but there just is no alternative job. There aren't, um, this is just sort of starting out. I mean, I hope that one day, like you, Chris, you were talking about Daily Wire. I mean, right now, if you're a screenwriter, I have friends who are writers, who are directors, producers. They're kind of still stuck in the old system. There is, the Daily Wire is sort of the only game in town. Um, Jeremy Boring, God bless him. He is, you know, doing great work, but there aren't, there really, there just isn't enough money in the pot to be producing 10, 20 features a year, you know, a hundred different um, series a year. There just aren't enough production companies and movie companies. And there's all this creativity on the right. And Chris and I have talked about this a lot. Um, we desperately need alternatives. We need, we need a hundred daily wires. You know, we need a hundred publishing companies that will stop putting out, you know, if you walk into a bookstore, you'll see what's on the YA shelves. It's all queer non-binary furries who are vampires or werewolves. Um, that's just what is out there. And so it's up to us, people listening, you know, we don't like woke capital. Well, you have to sort of, you do have to sort of build your own. You do have to sort of figure out what talents you have and go and go make it happen. One other thing I'll say is um, I have these teenage sons who are going to be looking for jobs in a few years. And that fills me with horror. Like hopefully Chris can one day hire them for his nonprofit or something because um, I don't know what to do with them. Yeah, I, I think, yeah, it, it, it is interesting. It's, um, 
you know, the, the big companies too, the, the news came out from Bloomberg. I think the statistic was slightly misleading, but there was a kind of net change uh, in employment at, at the big firms between like, I think 2000 and 20, 2020 and 2021. And, and, and something like 95% of the net was for, you know, so-called BIPOC uh, employees. Uh, so, so, you know, you, you kind of have this massive disproportionate hiring based on identity quotas, you know, formal or informal affirmative action programs. Uh, and then you see this, you know, at, at, I think in university admissions, um, you see what is, you know, uh, purposeful, deliberate, statistically measurable discrimination against uh, white applicants and especially Asian applicants. Uh, my kids happen to be uh, ha- half white, half Asian, so uh, they're they're doubly, uh, you know, penalized uh, as they get of age for applying. And so, you know, wh- what do you, te- you know, I always think like, well, what, what, how do I explain this to them? Uh, it, it, it seems very bizarre to have that conversation, um, but I, I think you have to be honest. You have to say, hey, this is the system. This is why it's wrong. But this is the reality that you're facing. Here's what you need to do. Uh, to overcome it. Here's what you need to do to prepare yourselves. And keep in mind, you know, my kids and your kids, uh, you know, are, are, are very fortunate, have a lot going for them, have resources that others do not have. And so um, it's, a, it's a fine balance. But I think that what I'm encouraging my kids to do, I'd be curious to hear from you, Kichi, and, and, and as well, you, Matt, how you think about it is be prepared to be entrepreneurial, be prepared to have your own firm, be prepared to have a variety of different uh, business opportunities, employment relationships, um, you know, master some skill, master some specialty so that you can kind of be the master of your own domain. That to me seems like a much better gamble than saying, you know, I hope that in 20 years you, you too could be you know, uh, putting your pronouns on your Zoom meeting or whatever, you know, it doesn't strike me as a very positive a life outcome. Yeah. yeah, I don't want, I wouldn't want my children suffering, you know, my sister's fate. Um, absolutely not. And I think that's great advice. My oldest definitely wants to start his own business. Um, if, if that's their interest, they should find a niche and try to exploit it and, and gear themselves towards that. Um, unfortunately, not every kid can do that. There are some kids who are going to be beholden on, you know, getting hired to write something or having to go to a publishing company or being hired by an advertising company. You know, as a creative, this was my <laughs> this was my cross to bear. I had like if I wanted to do this certain field, basically Disney was one of my only choices. So um, it's a very it's very it's scary. It's like not be, way beyond what call what school they go to, uh, you know, homeschooling them, what college they go to. It's really where they're going to be in 20, 30 years making a living in this in the current environment. That's right. All right. We're going to take some other questions. Let's go to Foxy Farmer and then we'll go to ESO Wells. Foxy Farmer, uh, you've been waiting patiently. Let her rip. Thank you for hosting today. It's been fantastic. I don't know where um, Libs of TikTok went. Did she leave? I think yeah, I think she she dropped off. Oh, okay. Well, I was going to ask for something, but um, but anyway, thank you for doing the space. Um, Peachy, I found your testimony to be super interesting and thank you for sharing your experience with Disney. Um, I am just somebody who's been working on all this on the ground. I was very involved in Virginia with Glenn Youngkin and trying to help him, um, you know, achieve his goal to win and whatnot with everything that was going on there. And this week, I don't know if you all saw this, Christopher, did you see that the students in Loudoun County um, held a, a walkout to try and um, 
and boycott the shared bathrooms? I did not, but that's uh, that's welcome a welcome development. Yeah, it was actually um, made national news, um, definitely all over the local news. But yeah, they've had enough. I mean, I think after that girl got raped in the bathroom in the high school there, that um, they'd had enough. So they don't want to share their locker rooms anymore, and um, and they're and they're staging walkouts now. So I'm just really proud of the the youth, and I, I really attribute that to those of you online who started fighting um, like the lips of TikTok and whatnot. I mean, everybody took a lot of heat because it was, it was really scary to fight this at first. Um, you know, you got a lot of death, That's right. and, death threats and, and, and whatnot. And Matt, can you also share insight? Uh, you know, that, that, that race in Virginia with Glenn Youngkin was a touchstone. It foregrounded a lot of these issues. Um, uh, if, if you're at liberty to do so, can you share some of your insights on that? I'm sorry, cough. Um, absolutely. So, for background, uh, for, first of all, thank you, Foxy, for, uh, for 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 working on that race. It was a really great thing we all did for the country. Uh, so we we did the polling and data for uh, for Yunkin, and we still are doing polling and data for his operation for this year. Uh, for those who don't know, there is, there are, the entire state legislature is up in Virginia in, uh, on Tuesday. Uh, we have the chance to get a trifecta there and give Governor Yunkin the opportunity to pass everything that he needs. So anyone in Virginia, if you have friends in Virginia, please do make sure that they get out and that they vote. Because uh, this is going to be a close one, and we really can actually turn Virginia into a red trifecta. Uh, we're so close, so close. Um, Great. But in, in terms of how that stuff worked, I mean, look, the, the the parent stuff was absolutely key, and a lot of it was just some of the very basic stuff. The you know kids aren't learning, and that was the way that we pivoted the culture war stuff. We talked about it. And there were a lot of very well-targeted ads about it, but it wasn't the primary thing. The primary thing was just the basic kids aren't learning, kids aren't safe, all of this and all of these other things that they're focusing on are distractions from you know, the things that are, that, that, that are needed. You know, they aren't accomplishing the basics. But yet they're spending all this time on DI this and that. And that's just a luxury, you know, like it or not, it's a luxury at minimum. Uh, also, you know, the, 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 the biggest gift that we had was uh, what was his opponent's comments about parental control. And that actually has become the touchstone. And it's such an effective issue. And we have lots of campaigns that are using that framing now because you know, it's, it goes to people's core identities. It, you have these union bosses and the people who they own actually saying, hey, you don't control your kids. We own your kids. We own the way that your kids are, are, are going to be raised. And that is – that triggers people. That triggers people's emotions. It attacks their identity. So it's a very effective thing to talk about, and it's the kind of thing that you can that can really get folks in the middle because it's not about a controversial policy. It's about them and their children. That's right. That's right. All right. Let's go to Marlon. Uh, Marlon. Oh, no. ESO. Uh, Sorry. We're going to go to ESO first and then to you, Marlon. All right. No problem. 
Thanks, Chris. Um, yeah, so I actually work in what would be probably at one point considered woke capital. Uh, we have about $300 billion at, in assets under management. And I want to say, first of all, that things looked bad in 2020. Uh, we had BlackRock as a partner who had different marketing pieces for our company that would say, you know, why it's okay to riot and and things along those lines, uh, kind of mid 2020, where you know these there were these approved marketing pieces that we would send out. I wouldn't, but some people would send out uh, to try to get investments. And it really, <laughs> I don't know what it had to do with increasing people's wealth. Clearly, it had nothing to do with it. It had something to do with a whole other agenda. But I want to say that at this point, three years later, um, I went to our quote unquote diversity meeting. They've dropped the word equity from the DEI. It's just diversity and inclusion now. There's no longer equity in there. Um, so it seems like things are changing internally at some of these big asset managers. So I just want to start with saying a message of hope that things are getting better and there's a lot of pushback internally for this kind of shit. And with that said, um, I, I, I somewhat agree with what Peachy said earlier about creating our own institutions. But the way that we got in this position in the first place is the fact that leftist activists are wearing these institutions as skin suits. And now we have the opportunity uh, as a bunch of people, especially in finance that are more right wing to come in and do the same thing and take it back. So I guess my question is, as somebody who's in uh, what would have been considered woke capital, but but now maybe semi woke capital, what can I do to try to retake this institution while also not losing my job? <laughs> That's a great question. Yeah, I, I mean, I also agree. I think we have to create alternatives, but we also have to remember that um, many of these institutions uh, in, in recent memory uh, were, were, were spot on on these issues. And so we shouldn't abandon uh, hope of controlling or influencing the large institutions. We shouldn't restrict ourselves to the kind of the ghetto of you know, talk radio or podcasts or whatever it might be, depending on the sector. And, uh, you know, I've talked a lot in the last few years with folks uh, in large companies about what to do. Um, and it, it really matters, okay, what is your situation? What is your risk tolerance? Um, but I, I found that one particular tactic is um, asking questions, uh, you know, uh, making suggestions in meetings. Uh, I know a lot of people in big companies that have internal groups that they've organized along political lines so they can support one another, finding allies in upper management. I know a lot of people in upper management or C-suites and big companies. Um, there's actually, a, you'd probably be surprised at how many of them hate this stuff. Um, I was at a dinner down in Silicon Valley with the CEOs of some massive public companies that showed up at a dinner to talk to me about how to quietly get the woke out of their tech companies. And so um, I, I think making alliances with people within the company, pushing back. And then one tech tactic that I counseled someone on and actually really worked, they got a couple of programs shut down, is emailing your uh, uh, kind of general counsel of your company when you see racially exclusionary programs or racially discriminatory programs and saying, hey, I'm uncomfortable participating in this because I'm afraid that it violates civil rights law. And if you send that email to your general counsel of your company, that person is now on the hook if there really is any problem. And, uh, and uh, that, that's been one particular tactic that's worked. 
that is uh, kind of subtle. So uh, I, I don't know. There may be others, Peachy, or, or in your experience in the corporate world, did you have any any luck or any tactics of working inside uh, Disney? Oh no! I mean, there, if you if you breathed a word, you would be out. I mean, you guys can't even imagine who the people are who work there. <laughs> they are. Uh, it was a hostile force I was surrounded by. But I mean, if there are, if you feel like you have allies, I mean, I was totally alone and I didn't know how to even find a single person. You know, I'm sure there, there, there was one or two, but how would I have even known to even breathe the words to the to like hint to that person? Like, hey, do you really feel like, you know, there's more than two genders? So if you have a company that has, you have allies, my sister's company, there was a secret message board. And they would be texting each other on this message board during the struggle sessions, like 50 to 100, 200 people mocking it, making fun of it during the live Zoom, you know, but there was really nothing they could do because the global organization was so top heavy and these people have families. They want to keep their job. So if there's a way to do like small, you know, small rebellions, like she, I think, is the last person in her in her entire department to not have her pronouns in her bio. And she just won't do it. So, I mean, that's nothing. It's like a tiny thing. You know, it's like turning the B upside down in the Arbeit Mach Frei sign on, at Auschwitz. You know, it's like the wrong the letter is the wrong way. The prisoner put it there as a tiny act of rebellion. I mean, if, if there's anything you can do to just like throw spokes in their wheels, I think is a good thing. And make allies. That's right. All right. Uh, let's go to Marlin. Uh, and then we'll uh, have some final comments and then wind down the space. Oh, I appreciate the space. Uh, and Peachy, I appreciate your comments. I kind of just jumped in uh, when you were speaking. I just recently left a firm. Uh, you know, it's a, it was a smaller firm, about half a billion assets under management. And um, it's been probably the most liberating thing that I've ever done because, uh, you know, now... I don't have to feel like I'm lying to people every day and I don't have to be in business with people that are, uh, you know, one week they fly the American flag in, in their front yard. The next week they're flying the trans flag in their front yard. Um, it, it, you know, what, what I really think I, I, the big institutions I feel like are lost completely, um, to what Peachy was talking about. But I think that if you, if you use, you can use Twitter as sort of a LinkedIn, um, and if you get enough people to form, you know, enough startups, uh, you know, four or five guys that are that use Twitter like LinkedIn to create businesses where you draw hard lines where, OK, we're we're only going to hire these our people. Um, that's really where the future is, uh, you know. The, the the big institutions I, I can't figure out any any way to surmount that but I mean I've got six business proposals that I've been working on with another pe with with other people on Twitter uh, you know ready to rock um, and I, I think that's that's a good way forward maybe we have Great. to take over the HR departments at the fortune 500. We will have no HR departments in our uh, in, in our startups. <laughs> nice. Yeah, I, and yeah. one and one other option for those who for those who want to fight, you know, we in on the professional conservative politics end, 
there aren't that many people graduating college or in college who want to go do the internships, do the jobs, you know, even on the creative end can always use aspiring ad makers. You know, there's, there, there are jobs in this world for, and paths for these young people, you know, if, if they want to fight. And as long as, look, if that's what you do for a living, you know, you stay free forever. Yeah, I, I found that to be true uh, in my work. You know, prior to working in politics, I worked in the documentary film industry, which is you know just as left left uh, lefty, if not more lefty, because there's no profit discipline than a company like Disney. And since I jumped into politics, it's like you you, you can't jump back very easily, uh, but but you can certainly jump forward in a number of different ways. And uh, and I found in my own experience to be you know more successful and more independent. Um, yeah, I have a higher income, uh, and I have different abilities to make a living, um, all within the political world. So people that are talented, that love politics, um, I think there is a, a lot of opportunity for us to, to, um, you know, turn their skills into something. And so why don't we have some closing statements from Peachy and Matt? Um, you know, Matt, why don't you, uh, uh you go first and then we'll, we'll close it out with Peachy. Sure. Um, and and yeah, continue on what I was saying. You know, especially in the, especially in the tech and creative sides that are so liberal, like we, we absolutely need people uh, who can use those things to fight for the, you know, to 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 fight for the right causes. So, that that is an option for people. Uh, in terms of closing, in terms of closings here, look, I think that a lot of smart things have been said all around. The reality is we've. We've seen that there are companies that are absolutely vulnerable to the sorts of things we want to do, and it's just a matter of fi- is figuring out what the right opportunity is, and then seeing that opportunity, seeing okay, it, are there enough people actually mad about this, and then and is this a good target, and then moving through with it. And I think that you know we've talked a lot about all of the sorts of things that we could use to determine where the good opportunities are, but it's really just a matter of seizing those opportunities. Um, Great. Yeah. All right. And Peachy, we'll, we'll give you the last word before we wind it down. Okay. Um, well, I was just thinking of what are the four criteria when looking around for like other things to boycott, because I do think they're fun. Um, I think they build morale, um, whether or not they're actually effective financially. So, Here's the four things to look for. You want a brand that has deep customer loyalty and a lot of reservoir of goodwill among the customers, Disney, the Dodgers, Bud Light. You want to find corporate leadership that's woker than the base. And that's basically every corporation now. And the company has to, we have to catch them making a mistake. And the more visceral, the more visual, and the more disgusting the mistake, the better. The Dodgers, when they had the, you know, the twerking, the the obese, um, twerking nuns um that was perfect and then the boycott has to be relatively low effort you can't ask people to change their entire existence uproot themselves but if it's relatively easy to do then you have a gold mine and the two places chris i would love to push on in the future are and it's already started now you know silver linings thank you hamas um finally these big college donors have woken up there's a silver lining to everything right so I would love to see these elite institutions get wrecked by their very wealthy Jewish donors who have sent their children there, who they, their grandchildren go to these schools like Penn and Harvard. They're horrified by seeing the eruption of the exposure of the Hamas cells at all these schools. 
And so I would love to see that really pushed on hard. Yeah, that is great. Yeah, we could do a whole space on just that. And I, I've seen that, you know, behind the scenes, um, you know, of course, uh, American Jews, but also just uh, wealthy Americans uh, of all backgrounds are starting to think about their alma maters in a different uh, in a different light. And it's a it, it really is a boycott. It's an elite, you know, kind of billionaire led boycott of, of, of philanthropic contributions to the Ivy League universities. But um you know, when, when you say, I'm not going to give you this $100 million, uh, people uh, at least start to listen. So I think that is, I think that's perfect. Um, and, you know, just to, to kind of summarize that as we sign off, it's, there is a tremendous amount of opportunity. The game has changed on the right with corporate boycotts. Uh, and then finally, kind of right wing grumbling about universities and other institutions is finally turning into action that is punishing these institutions for transgressing our values and slowly but surely changing their behavior. So uh, we will stay tuned. Thanks for everyone who participated. Thanks for all the great comments. Thanks to Peachy and Matt Nee and Libs of TikTok uh, for being our panelists. And, uh, you know, sign up for my Substack at ChristopherRufo.com to get alerted to future spaces. Um, I hope you all have a very nice weekend. Goodbye. Uh, to get alerted to future spaces. Um, I hope you all have a very nice weekend. Goodbye.